0: Hello, I am Sebastian Teotrio. And I'm Alex Allingsworth. Welcome to The Hidden Curriculum, a podcast where we
1: talk about all the stuff you didn't learn in graduate school.
0: Hello, everyone. Hope you had a great week. We are excited to bring you another episode of The Hidden Curriculum. Alex, how was your
1: break? Uh, It was great. I, yeah. uh, I got to drive 16 hours in a car with an infant, which is oh, you know, really refreshing. Fantastic. Everyone feels great <laughs> at the end of that. Um, what, what about you, yeah. Sebastian? How's your, how's your break?
0: Uh, break was good. We actually, um, uh, a colleague of mine offered for us to stay at their place. And it turns out they have like an amazing house that they build and design out in the woods and I knew it was awesome because I posted some pictures on Instagram and like a lot of people was like, where's that MBRB? I want to stay there. So it's a very like nature relaxing kind of, uh, type of, type of, uh, vacation. There's only a few days, but it was good. It was a good way to receive the year.
1: Nice. What about you, Monica? How was your break?
2: I did this staycation, which in retrospect did not feel like a staycation because of course I ended up like cleaning and organizing mm-hmm. and doing all of the other things. Um, I, I, am proud of myself because I did not do work for some period, but um, I wish I'd been able to get away for a bit. I'm looking forward to some post-pandemic life where I can have a real vacation.
0: For sure, for sure.
1: Our special guest today is Dr. Monica Aswani. Monica is an assistant professor in the Department of Health Services Administration at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Her research focuses on the distributional consequences of health policy related to payment, delivery reform programs, social safety net eligibility and spending, and health insurance, she received a perfect F31 grant score from the NIA, which supported her dissertation paper that won the 2019 International Health Economics Association Student Prize. She's also received other awards and honors, including regional finalists for White House Fellowship, UAB Young Alumni Rising Star Award, and the Phi Kappa Phi Dissertation Fellowship. She earned her MSPH and her DRPH from the UAB School of Public Health. Previously, she also contributed to health services research throughout fellowships at Johns Hopkins University and the World Health Organization. Uh, Monica, thank you so much for being here. That is an impressive bio, but we'd like to learn something that's not on the bio, a fun and shareable fact about yourself.
2: So I think the coolest thing that I can share, um, and it's unfortunate that folks can sort of like not see this, but I'm double-jointed in my shoulders,
0: Oh! Oh gosh, she's doing it! (laughs) It is is real. She's doing Uh it live. That always hurts me when somebody else does it.
2: So at least they have proof. Um, I can connect my hands basically behind my back and bring them all the way over my head without ever letting go. Mm. Um, This means when I was little and I was shorter, uh, I could use my own arms as a human jump rope, which I thought was incredibly cool. Unfortunately, other kids did not quite think so, which was really sad. Um, And I recently did. And recently, I mean, in pre-pandemic life, an escape room with some friends and you start out handcuffed and I could sort of easily help us get out of that situation. Um, And so we got- That's an
1: aggressive escape room. Like you're legit. (laughs) (laughs) I've done ones before where it's just like, you have to like figure out some like new alphabet or something. Never one where I've been like put in a straight jacket underwater (laughs) or something. That's crazy.
2: (laughs) Well, the operator was not impressed with like my shenanigans getting out of it. And I was like, this isn't (laughs) technically cheating.
1: Yeah. Hey, you're, you're using what you've got. All right. So before we dive into today's topic, we'd love to talk a little bit about your work. Uh, is there some paper or project or anything like that, that you would love to promote?
2: Um, you know, so I think something I've been working on recently um, that started out as sort of like one of those random passing conversations at a conference is looking at the potential for cliff effects in the hospital readmissions reduction program. And so it's a value-based program that originally started out looking at the 30-day unplanned readmissions for select conditions. And there was concern about uh, the role of social risk and how it may not uh, be appropriately accounted for in the program. And so it recently changed to take into account whether a beneficiary was dual Medicare-Medicaid status. And in doing so, one of the things that they've done is Uh, introduce this new stratification method where they divide hospitals into quintals and so that introduces this sort of potential it's like this quasi like arbitrary change in performance that's not actually meaningful
0: that's awesome so that's work in progress or it's already submitted
2: it's work it's works in progress Um, but it's something that i think it started out as like uh random conversations and it's it's been ongoing and going back and forth. And so it's sort of nice to see something get closer and closer to fruition over time.
1: Another segment that we like to do is where we talk a little bit about your workflow. Uh, This could be like your idealized workflow, but if that's the case, let us know, or it could be what you actually uh, do on a day-to-day basis. So we'd love to know, just sort of the spirit of the question is uh, to convey to uh, students or new faculty, sort of how do you actually go about uh, uh, producing research or teaching or service or any of these things? And uh, if there's any tips that you could share along the way, uh, that would be something great uh, for our listeners.
2: So I definitely think there's right this learning curve to optimizing your workflow. And I think one of the, uh, the things I really struggled with in my transition from grad student to faculty life was I had sort of finally figured out my Goldilocks balance of what worked for me as a graduate student. And then all of a sudden that no longer worked in faculty life. Mm. Um, And so like I often joke about this, right? But my inbox is constantly blowing up as a faculty member and there was no professional development seminar on email triage. that I, I swear I could probably still use if someone um, would like to give that to you.
1: I, I could use it. Yeah.
2: yeah. I'll add the other caveat, right? That right as I think I started to get a handle on a pandemic life started. And so-
0: Right. Because um, what, what do you do? You started, sorry? You,
2: so I started in 2019.
0: 2019, okay, right. One thing that um, when people ask me like, oh, what are the things that you wish you knew You know, when to start? And I, I always tell them like, I wish somebody told me that like, 30% of the of the job is responding to emails and like dealing with that kind of stuff because it's truly like a ton of time that you spend <laughs> on. And I guess I'm getting paid for that, but you know, it's a lot. And, and normally we edit out errant
1: sounds or whatever, but I think someone just received an email while you said that, which is <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: perfect. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So yeah, so you were saying that you had to adjust then not only the first year, but after to the pandemic.
2: I think- one of the most um, helpful pieces of advice I got was from John Graves at Vanderbilt. We were uh, going back and forth over email about something, and he recommended to maximize productivity units and not hours spent on work.
1: So, what what's a productivity unit? Yeah, I've never heard
2: of And so, I think it's you know it's sort of really like at the margin. How do you spend your time and? So when I think about like, what are the overarching goals for my calendar? I have these three main ones, right? And the first is I'm going to protect the large blocks of time when I'm most productive. So for me, that's early in the morning. Like I rarely schedule meetings in the morning if I can help it at all. I'm up really early and I sort of have a a set morning routine that I try not to deviate from. The second is I try and align activities with my bandwidth. And so, for example, I don't know about other folks, but for me, I I love lecturing and I find it really rewarding, but I'm typically really drained afterwards. Like the introvert in me just needs to decompress. Mm-hmm. You know, I need to eat usually. Um, I can do things like meetings, for example, but the chances is I'm actually going to make some you know, meaningful movement on a manuscript, it's pretty slim to none. So I sort of keep that in mind when I'm organizing my calendar. And I think the last thing is, you know, I really want to be sure about how is it that I'm going to minimize switching costs? So one of the things I really struggle with is I I do well in large blocks of time where I can focus. And then Mm -hmm. if I have to switch a lot, if I have like a a 30 minute, you know, block, for example, the chances of me being productive are pretty slim. Mm -hmm. And so I try and factor that into account.
1: So, so as a productivity unit, this idea of like a period of time where you're like, think you have the highest chance of being productive based off what you were just talking about.
2: Exactly. And then, you know, it sort of goes back to the teaching example I gave and the times that, you know, you're not going to be as productive. Don't try and force it because it's sort of not as valuable to attempt to do something when you're going to have to spend more time doing it. If that's not the best time for you.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I could put on my calendar, stare at wall after teaching <laughs> class. You know, I feel like I would do it.
2: Exactly. And so, you know, I've tried to, you know, for example, uh, like move a manuscript forward or get some coding done. And then I've gone back and looked at it and been like, I should have known better. Like that was not the time for it. Even if I had that time free, I should have waited until the morning when I had just had my coffee and, you know, after my run and I was ready to go. Do
0: you do you feel like in the, in the times where you're the most productive those morning times that you always want to do work or that half of, you know, how often do you feel like you're like in the mood of doing work during those productive times?
2: So I would say more often than not, like okay probably almost always. Now I'm a pretty routine and regimented person. And so okay. I think, you know, for me, I have that down. Now, I think the mornings where I'm distracting, for example, it's like, you know, when something major is going on in the world and I'm, I'm distracted by news <laughs> or something. So like, like this
0: week? <laughs> yeah. This past year? Yeah. Oh it's God.
2: on my mind. Um, so like, I actually just put in a request for inauguration day off because I was like, I just, I oh, know I'm really smart, not going to be productive.
0: That's smart. That seems like pretty cool advice of like thinking about productive units. And maybe let's get a little bit more into like, how do you know what you're going to do? Um, doing those times? Do you have like a review time and period?
2: I feel like there's probably a lot of folks that use some really cool technology or apps or things. I'm really old school. Um, And so I have this whiteboard in my office that's divided into three columns. And I literally like my entire department rightfully makes fun of me for it because like the first day I took a ruler to my whiteboard to draw these columns (laughs) and they're called to do, doing and done. Um, (laughs) And then I have, post-it notes that are different colors and so you know Mm. research is one color and teaching is one color and sort of service and admin are another color
0: that's great i like that we'll put a link to the actual picture of the board because she posted it on twitter
1: except the picture you posted has a frowny face on it oh no (laughs) a a happy (laughs) face on it
2: (laughs) pandemic life and there was like I wasn't in my office using my board and I was like, I just, this is sad. That's like funny. I missed my whiteboard. because be like some
1: good. type of thieving from the university if you just took it and took it home, but like <laughs> you should get one and set it up at home.
2: Well, and that's the other thing is like, you need a large whiteboard to do this. Because for me, I'm constantly moving different post-it notes around. And so for example, you know, if I'm working with a collaborator, I may move, you know, manuscript to done if I've handed it off to them but it doesn't mean I'm throwing that post-it note away because I know that when they turn it back around to me, I'm going to move it back to the to-do column. So,
1: so you have a post-it note per like project, not a post-it note per like task. Cause I think one of my colleagues, Vicki Perez has like a kind of a similar mm. setup with her whiteboards, mm. but I, I think, well, she has so many post-it notes it must be <laughs> the case that it's each one is a task or, or like a smaller collection of tasks.
2: So they're typically tasks, but for something like that, where I think it's I'm going to end up doing the same task again, such as edit manuscript for whatever or something. You know, a lot of times I'll just cross out the date on that post-it and then write the new one. But I tend to not throw the post-it note away. <laughs> and
0: at how many post-its do you have in each column as a max or, or something? Because I feel like... You one could just have a lot of these postage notes for these three columns,
2: you know. But that ends up being a good visual indicator to me as to like what I'm lagging behind on or when okay. my bandwidth like, when do I need to say no? So, for example, like I've had folks ask me something mm-hmm. and they're like in my office and they can even look at my whiteboard and be like,
0: You're like, Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, like, right. Eh,
2: I could always ask someone else if needed. And I'm like, That may be best, you know. I've got a bunch of really big deadlines coming up, for example, and so, um it's a good visual indicator to me. And I think that's one of the things I really like about it. Cause right. If one column has, you know, especially like the to do or doing gets out of control with the number of post-it notes on it. It's like, hang on, how do I remedy I it?
0: Right. I like that visual component of it. Cause you can literally see I have a beep ton of things to do right so that that makes a lot of sense
2: and I think the other thing I like about it so for example if I'm like sitting there working on something and I'm getting really antsy and I'm not focusing the way that I would like I can sort of look up at it and say what's something else that's low bandwidth I can do and so one of the things that I did is I just made a post-it note of like literally what's a list of those things so like I can update my CVE you know, what are my IRB date renewals? What are, you know, Mm -hmm. like reimbursements, for example, because I'm really bad about doing those for whatever reason. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, so I have a list of things like that, too. And a lot of times, like, what will end up happening? is I'll look up and be like, I don't want to do those. I will focus.
0: Right. Do you have any other like kind of those general tips that that you may want to share with our audience?
2: So I will say for me, one of the learning curve pieces to that was You know, as a grad student, I didn't really struggle with like aligning my Outlook calendar with my whiteboard for whatever reason.
0: Mm, Okay.
2: Um, And at like particularly at the start of faculty, like there was just so many things going on that some things make it to either my Outlook calendar or my whiteboard, (laughs) right? and Um, and, And thankfully, you know, I didn't drop any major balls. But one of the things I've had to learn to do is is have a system for that. So right now, everything goes into my Outlook calendar first. And everything I've,
0: you mean events and tasks or yeah, just events.
2: Okay. Just events, but like particularly deadlines or things. So for example, right. um, you know, if there's a grant application due date, or if I, I've told a co-author, for example, okay, I owe you a draft by XYZ date, that goes into my Outlook calendar. And a lot of times I like it that way because I can look at my Outlook calendar, you know, anywhere I am.
0: Mm-hmm. But
2: on Sunday nights, I typically look go through my calendar and make notes. And then on Monday, I can just update my whiteboard. Mm-hmm. That way there's no disconnect between them. Now, my whiteboard often has a few more things than my Outlook calendar, which is okay, but it's not, you know, sort of ball dropping type task.
0: So this is an interesting topic of the day, and here's how it came about. So Monica tweeted, that she has a hidden curriculum talk that she gives students for applying to grad school. And when I saw that, I was like, Oh my gosh, our podcast is called a hidden curriculum. We have to invite her. Um, fortunately at the end, because she already gave it a lot of information in that tweet, she said that she has other talks related to dissertation advice and grant writing. So we messaged her and said, well, why don't you save some of that for our podcast? <laughs> uh, but you can also do it as a Twitter if you want to. So, so let's talk about that. What, what kind of, um, Uh, stuff you have in your mind for dissertation, maybe advice, and also getting ready if they're related, uh, that are some hidden curriculum kind of tips?
2: You know, to me, one of the biggest parts about hidden curriculum is really just illuminating these like barriers and setbacks and rejections and all the the things that sort of happen behind the scenes that no one sees because, right, what folks see is the survivorship bias of, oh, you got a grant funded, for example. And so when I open the talk that I give to my students, which sort of overlaps for me with both my dissertation and the grant. And I'll explain why in a minute. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it opens with sort of like a timeline. And then there's a slide of four screenshots of like email rejections that I got during this period. (laughs) And it's just like, you know, at the same time, like while you're hearing that I maybe got a perfect score on a grant, please keep in mind that I was like, right rejected from some opportunities at places I would have really loved to have spent time at like Rand Mm -hmm. and Mathematica and congressional budget, like congressional budget office, you know, Um, it's
0: not an overnight success as some people like to think. Right.
2: Oh, and you know, in those moments when I'm like racking up projections, right. um, Of course I'm sort of feeling imposter syndrome. And even though it shouldn't resonate as personally as it does, it does in our world a little bit. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I always just sort of, hope and endeavor to like remind students that you know what you see is just sort of this end outcome and people don't share everything else that happened behind it
1: yeah and i think that's that's useful for number one like i don't know if showing people rejections gets their hopes up but it like weirdly kind of does right because it's like oh like like everyone's human
0: yeah no, I, no, I really
1: like yeah, i like that phrase you survivor bias like i had a conversation on twitter and then like separately with people about like sort of this like realm of space we're occupying a bit here with this podcast um might be like like we give a lot of tips or we give a lot of advice like we might not know what we're talking about like a lot of times we really don't know what we're talking (laughs) about and it could just be survivor bias like we could be misplacing like success with luck like i did this thing so that's you need to do this thing but really maybe we just got lucky like it's it's hard to know or advantages too yeah that we had yeah and it's so hard
0: to parse out
2: right like I don't think we ourselves know. And so, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: you know, I think in some ways that's why I try to be so transparent about everything that's happened to me, which is to say, like, so here are some successes and here's what I did here. Also, some, probably a lot more, to be quite frank, rejections and failures. Um, And here's what I learned from them. And honestly, most of them were stepping stones and pretty valuable. And that's mm-hmm. not me sugarcoating it. Some of them honestly just heard and that's the truth and that's okay. But, mm-hmm. you know, one of the reasons there are some successes is because I just kept submitting. And that doesn't mean that, you know, the rejection sort of felt any less personal, but mm-hmm. it also gave me, like, I viewed them as learning opportunities.
0: Mm-hmm. It's the law of large numbers, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you, try, you try a lot, something's going to stick. So, so maybe tell us a little bit about how, you went about working in your dissertation, that topic. um, So then we can walk into the narrative and then, and then learn from that experience.
2: If you'll indulge me for like a minute, I'll just share the personal narrative behind what happened in, you know, this notion of sort of being transparent and sharing. And so there's this whole personal backstory to my dissertation and writing this grant that most people don't know about. And so it's an
0: exclusive for the hidden curriculum.
2: (laughs) So I, I have this mentor, I, it was really close to my dissertation chair. And he's like, I have this great idea. You should write an NIH F31, it's a dissertation grant. And I'm like, okay. Right. (laughs) Now, at this point in time, when he's saying this, I had previously been working on a different dissertation that used proprietary data. And that fell through and the long story short is the company was being bought out. And so I no longer had access to that data. And sort of in the months leading up to this, my dad had unfortunately passed away and, like, literally, right as we're about to start this, sort of right before, I suffered a really bad concussion where I fainted and I hit my head twice on the way down. Um, but yeah, so, right, like, all of this has happened prior.
0: Right.
2: And my chair is like, I, I think you should write this. And I'm, I literally look at him and I'm like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard.
0: <laughs> You're like, not right now.
2: <laughs> like, are you serious? Right. And so I had to figure out how do I write this grant, but first I need a question. I need something that I'm going to propose. And I kept thinking about the advice folks had given me. And it was things like, you know, read voraciously. And I was like, how do I translate that to a research question? I hear what people are saying and I know they're, they're well-intended, but like for me, I wanted a roadmap. Like I wanted something a bit more actionable.
0: More structure. Right.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And
1: I, I think that's a really tough thing too, because people forget very quickly what it was like to be in that position where you were like, I don't have ideas all the time. And then as soon as you have like a couple of papers and you've done it a few times, like, you know, some holes in the literature, you know, some like avenues you started to take, but then we're like, ah, that's not a part of this project. I'll do it later. And you forget what it was like to be like, not, not that you were like a blank slate then, but you know, like, like, like some version closer to that. Um, I don't know. I, th- I try to think about that a lot. Yeah.
2: Exactly. I mean, I think, you know, right now my sort of rate limiting stuff is not questions, but time, but back then. And so my dad had been critically ill for many years prior and I'd been in and out of the ICU with him repeatedly. And so I had some frontline insights from that into the hospital readmissions reduction program. And this was sort of early on before the program uh, had been studied quite as much as it had now. And so I just decided I was gonna take a few days and do nothing but read the literature. Like I had some hmm. sense of the literature, but it, it wasn't a lot.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so I made a spreadsheet and for every article I read, I sort of, you know, there were some basics, but then it was basically, okay, what's the main outcome they're looking at? You know, what are the main X and Y variables? What are the data sets and the methods that they employed? Um, you know, what's the direction and the magnitude of the main findings? All of these different things that I sort of put together and then at the end i color code everything and it, it sounds really like a, a fisher price like five year old thing but you know <laughs> it was oh people have done it this way in that way but no one has done the green pink blue oh, orange that's super combo. interesting
0: that's super interesting yeah it's like a very visual way of seeing what they haven't done kind of
2: yeah and again sort of like my whiteboard like you'll see a right. theme probably throughout the podcast but that you know it worked really well for me but it felt like this visual literature review that gave me a really good yeah. sense of what folks had found, mm-hmm. but also ways it hadn't been studied. And it was sort of like, I'm not kidding when I'm just like, I have this aha moment of like, right. you know, no one's answered this question or that question or that question. Right. Right. And right. I have this like standing meeting with my mentor at the time and I'm like, but no one's done this color combo. And he's like, <laughs> I think that's supposed to be insightful, but like, <laughs> I really need some context.
0: <laughs> like, what do you mean yeah. by the rainbow here? <laughs>
1: yeah. So I just, I'm just curious. So this sounds like a really cool way that you, um, I don't know if like finding a hole in the literature is the right way of, of, of describing it, but, but you sort of got yourself in a place where you could see what it's sort pieces. of the, the, the appropriate questions that could be asked or answered are. Is there a way that you could sort of synthesize what you learned from this process in a way that might be helpful for that student?
2: Sure. So I think a big part of the dissertation is figuring out how do you translate, you know, intellectual stimuli that jogs your curiosity and to figure out if that's like a testable question or not. Right. Um, And that's a little hard. And I would say the first thing is, you know, some of my questions, even in that spreadsheet, for example, couldn't be answered because for example, there were data constraints of maybe I couldn't have afforded it, right, as a grad Mm. student. Um, And so I would sort of say the first thing is to just not be discouraged if what you potentially come up with the first however many times, even, you know, in double, triple digits doesn't work out. I actually think that's a really important part of the learning process. And so when we talk about sort of translating this, I worry that students often think like, oh, my first idea was sort of not great or my second idea was not great and that's bad whereas I actually think that's the critical piece that's actually really important part of this whole intellectual adventure Mm -hmm. um I think the other thing is sort of learning how, how do you work best so for example I guarantee you there are a ton of brilliant you know folks that I know that could have read voraciously and come up with something and they didn't need to go through this whole like you know, color coding adventure that I did. And so I think there's some trying to figure out how is it that you learn best and are able to work best.
1: Mm -hmm. It sounds like you were doing something really intentional with this process. Um, So I'm just trying to get a a mind of like, you you saw this goal where you were like, I don't actually know what's going on in this literature, or you didn't, you felt like you didn't know what was going on, which I think is often a thing that grad students feel like. So this was your way of being like, okay, so I'm going to like, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to read this stuff, but I want to make sure I don't lose track of the information that I'm learning. And this was your way of sort of keeping track of it. Is is that a fair characterization?
2: Yeah. So I think most things I do, for example, um, you know, like my study guides in undergrad or something like this, the goal is also to sort of help me have this documentation moving forward. So for example, when I was writing my specific aims, I just looked at the spreadsheet pretty constantly because it really gave me the background and set up the motivation for the study I was proposing, right? Which was like, you know, studies one through four have looked at it this way and found this, studies, you know, five through whatever have looked at this and found this.
1: I like that quite a bit. So I recently uh, started, I did a paper that has like an education component in it. And I'm not like an education economist. And I felt very uncomfortable, like writing the introduction or like working on that part. And I did something similar, not, not as sort of uh, uh, in-depth as you did with, with the color coding, but where I was like, I need to keep track of like what people have done before. So I started for each paper writing like one or two sentences where I was like, this is like the data they use is this, the years they use is this, what they find is this. And I had it in like a master document. And then I would go back, just sort of like you said you would do with your undergrad classes and refer to that when I was working on the intro. And I would just have to trust previous me that I did it thoroughly. And it seems like, setting up systems to make sure that you feel like you're like, that you can trust what you're doing and what you're thinking is, is correct. I, I don't actually like that phrasing that I just used though.
2: I think it's finding ways to synthesize what you're doing so that you're able to go back and reflect on that without having to pull out each, you know, individual thing too. Right. Cause for me, I could have read each paper, but I don't know that I could have synthesized them in totality without that spreadsheet to get the narrative of what was happening. And so, You know, one of the things that became really clear to me when I went through that process was, you know, folks have looked at this with respect to, for example, readmission rates, but not readmission penalties. Or, you know, folks have only looked at it in this data set for this outcome, but not this data set. And so it took me really being able to see everything all together to get like to synthesize all of those papers and understand here's what the literature has found and here's what it hasn't looked at. And so when we talk about things like, you know, filling a gap in the literature, I'm not sure I really understood what that meant. Like I did, obviously, but I think I didn't really quite know how to operationalize that until I was going through this weird exercise that I wasn't, you know, planning or I didn't really know what the outcome was going to be. But then I could see these weird patterns and say, oh, like that is a gap in the literature,
1: I like that point quite a bit that you didn't start with the end in mind where you were just like, I'm just going to keep track of this stuff and like, see what's there. Cause uh, exactly as you brought up earlier, right? Like when a student or somebody would maybe look at the grant proposal that you wrote, it might be like, wow, she obviously knew all this ahead of time, but like, it's a process. Right. And it's like, this is, this is your process.
2: Yeah. Right. I didn't, I didn't know how valuable that was going to be at the time. It was just, I have to figure out something quickly I need a way as I'm reading these things to like, you know, summarize them and make note of them. And this seems logical to me because just reading alone, like I'm going to forget what I read. And that was sort of it, Um, you know, when I go on to like present some of that work, I often have screenshots of that spreadsheet and it's really interesting for people to see because I can sort of point out like, you know, that's what it was at the time, like sure now, lots of books have come in and sort of filled that gap. But, you know, for me as a grad student, it was just really easy to be like, but see, no one's done the like green, pink, blue, orange. Like that's it.
1: Awesome. So thank you so much for sharing all of these insights. I'm going to try to summarize some of the stuff that you said today, and then please jump in and like correct me. So one of the first things we talked about is, Uh, When trying to think about what successful writing looks like, whether it's dissertation writing or uh, grant proposal writing, that folks often just see survival bias, right? So you often see the successful grants, the funded grants, the published papers, um, but showing uh, rejections or at least being aware that many of those things were rejected many times uh, can can be really illustrative and you can learn a lot from those rejections as well. Uh, As you said, sometimes it's just bad luck or bad reviewers, but often it's actually you've learned something useful about the process. Uh, and you gave this advice sort of just to keep submitting. Um, And then uh, another thing that we talked about was uh, when writing, and I think that this would apply equally well for like a grant proposal or dissertation, um, it's not like you have to have the end goal or the research question in mind. Um, So when you start reading, you can start writing and organizing your thoughts and whether or not that writing looks like the writing that's going to end up in the paper, or it looks like an Excel spreadsheet, or, um, you know, you weren't using your post-it notes to sort of organize your thoughts on on the reading, but you could imagine some system like that. Uh, all of that is fine because the goal here is to try to see the forest through the trees. Um, and don't get discouraged if you can't do that at first, because it just takes a bit of time. Uh, and, and to keep, it sounds like you um, were talking about different ways of experimenting with doing that too. Mm-hmm. So that's something that we should encourage students to do as well. Something not working for you. We could try something else.
0: Listen for life.
1: Thank you so much for all these insights in this conversation today. Uh, every week, we like to ask our guest for a recommendation of the week. It could be Anything, quote, paper, a book, uh, a song, uh, anything that you feel like uh, has improved your life or you think would improve the life of our uh, tens of listeners. Uh, so Monica, please uh, share it. Um, so I,
2: in my first year faculty life, joined this national center for faculty, uh, development and diversity. They have this faculty success program and I remain in it as an alumni. It's awesome. Have you done it?
1: Yes, I have.
2: It's great. Right. Um, and so one of the alumni in the program that's in my group now recommended this book and she was like, Monica, I'm reading it. I, I just know that you would love it. Um, and it's called the economization of life by Michelle Murphy. Um, and so I, you know, I, am not going to lie in pandemic life. It may not quite be the relaxing book. some <laughs> read. So with that sort of, uh, out there, it's a really good book and I highly recommend
1: reading it. Awesome. We will put a link to that in our show notes. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, I'm going to change my recommendation of the week based off of what you said. Um, so I, I'll give this recommendation next week. It's going to, it was about email templates, but, uh, I also did the, uh, NCFDD program. And one of the things I I don't do the alumni version of it every single semester, but it it is the beginning of the spring semester here. This, this podcast will probably come out later on. And one of the things I do at the beginning of every semester now, because of uh, NCFDD is I do a semester plan at the beginning of the semester. Mm -hmm. And it's sounds dumb. It sounds like, Oh, of course, like, shouldn't everyone do that? But I definitely Ah. didn't do it before I did this program. Uh, And (laughs) you can do uh, that. I think you have to pay money for all of the, uh, the, the program, but I'm pretty sure that the podcast or webinar with the semester plan is freely available to anyone. Ooh. Uh, so we'll, I'll look for that and we'll post a link there. It's like an hour long. I think it's probably only needs to be like 20 minutes long because they do a lot of talking and explaining about the program, but it's simple stuff like write down your goals, map your goals to your calendar, realize you have too many goals, you know, <laughs> re- rewrite your goals again. Uh, just, just simple stuff that I think makes my life a lot better.
2: And I can actually send my, because I have a template for my semester plan that I'm happy. That would be send. great.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I would love so to I check that
0: out. Time. All right, Sebastian, what do you have this week? So my recommendation of the week, it's going to be a YouTube channel, um, which is, I guess it's also a webpage, but it's called Econimate. So it's the word econ and then I-M-A-T-E. Um, and it's this YouTube channel um, in which they summarize research papers but they do it in a way of like little cartoons. And I think it's like super fun and a nice way to just consume research that you may otherwise not read. This is done by a PhD economics student from MIT. Um, Oh, sorry. She's not a PhD. She got her PhD in economics from MIT. Her name is Hoya Lun Nguyen. I hope I'm saying it right. She's currently a faculty member in the School of Business at UC Berkeley. So check out economy. We'll put a uh, link in the show notes.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you everyone for listening today. And thank you to Monica for joining us today. Uh, Monica, where can people find out more about yourself and about your research?
2: They can go to my website at www.msaswani.com.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much.
2: Have a great one, guys. It's been great. Thanks for hosting me.